Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. You know, if you were to take an overall view or an overall theme of the book of Hebrews, the theme really basically is that Jesus is better. I mean, that's, it boils down to it. Jesus is better. Well, better than what? And uh, you've got to kind of look at the book of Hebrews. As, as, again, Luke mentioned last week, I listened to his message. It's on the Internet if you want to look, catch chapter 1. Um, but this book was written to Hebrews, to Jewish people. And uh, these Jewish people now, you know, they've been steeped in the Old Covenant, right? They've, they've grown up going to the synagogue. They, they know the Old Testament. You know, they've heard it, you know, word of mouth. They've studied it. They are, they are part of the Old Covenant. They know the law. They know, they know that whole Old Testament economy. And now they're confronted with the New Covenant, the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. And so this book is really written towards the Hebrews who are confronted with, you know, what do I do about the Old Testament now? What, you know, my, my whole belief system, it's like it's just been turned upside down with Jesus to some people. And so the writer of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, but, it, you know, they don't really know, we don't really know, um, is pointing out that Jesus is better than the Old Testament economy and the law. In fact, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. I love going through the Old Testament Scriptures, and I love, you know, we've done it, we started in Genesis years ago, well, a few years ago anyways. Uh, right now we're up to the, we just finished the book of Daniel, and, you know, we'll go through Hebrews, and we might go back into the Old Testament again. And as we go through the Old Testament, how many times is there pictures and allusions to Jesus Christ? It's throughout page after page. And I love looking at those in the Old Testament. So everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And chapter 1, which Luke covered really well, Jesus is better than the prophets of the Old Testament. That was the first three verses of that Scripture, of chapter 1. And then the rest of that chapter, uh, the writer goes in saying how Jesus is so much better than the angels. And uh, that actually, that kind of continues through chapter 1 and into chapter 2 that we're going to look at this morning. Um, the writer goes on to explain then, and this is again what we'll be looking at this morning, that man was made a little lower than the angels. Uh, and for a time, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. That's through verses 5 through 9. And then verses 10 through 18, he explains why Jesus was made lower than the angels. Now, although this letter was written to the Hebrews, I think there could be a temptation for us to maybe write it off as, well, if it's written to Jewish people, I'm not Jewish, so it really doesn't apply to me. It's all this Old Testament stuff. And, you know, he's explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ, and that doesn't really affect me as a New Testament Christian. Well, although the letter was written to Hebrews, it's applicable to Christians. Jew or Greek. It's applicable to all of us. And uh, so with that, let's get a look at chapter 2. And I'm just going to read through it and then we'll go back and talk about it. So beginning with verse 1, it says, Therefore, we must give the, mo- mo- excuse me, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first 
began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he had put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So going back to verse 1, and I know that we already kind of covered it last week, but I'm going to pick up from there. Verse 1, Therefore, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That word, therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, well, as Luke mentioned in chapter 1, he's saying, basically, he's he's summing up what he talked about in in chapter 1. Because you've received a revelation superior to that of the prophets under the old dispensation, And because that revelation was given to you through one who is superior to angels, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. What does he mean to give the more earnest heed? It means literally to apply oneself to, to attach oneself to, to hold or to cleave to a person or a thing. And in uh, it's actually a, a nautical term. And it really means that the, the whole purpose of the word means bringing a ship, tying a ship up to a mooring somewhere, docking the ship, anchoring the ship instead of floating along. And so what he's saying is we need to grab a hold of 
or cling to or anchor ourselves to the things we have heard lest we drift away. And that lest we drift away, again, it's another nautical term. And really what it means, it's, it's a metaphor for being swept past some place where you can actually tie up. Now, you know, Teresa and I bought a canoe last year and, and uh, we've gone out on a lake. And of course, lakes don't have current, but I've been in canoes before going down a river. And, you know, you go down a river and, and you see a landing. And uh, if, the, if the current's swift enough or if you're not paying attention, before you know it, it's too late to get over to the side, right? I mean, it's like you, you're just kind of watching it going by and going, oh, I guess I have to land somewhere else. That's the idea. If you and I don't anchor on to the things that we're studying, the things that are of God's Word here, if we don't cling to them, we can find ourselves drifting along in life. And pretty soon you see that drifting past. And so that's, that's, the, that's the admonition. That's the warning um, that's the application, basically, of chapter one. Like Luke said last week, you know, we 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 need to we need to pay it. We need to be studying these scriptures. We need to understand them. We need to apply them in our lives. And so, in verse two, he says, "For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every de- transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation?" Now, you might be reading that and go, well, wait a minute, what, was, what is he talking about? The word was spoken through angels. Well, what the writer is talking about, again, he's speaking to Jewish people. And the Jewish tradition was that the law, the Old Testament law, the, the, the Ten Commandments, was given through the agency of angels on Mount Sinai. That's what the Jews believed. And it's not, it's not like, that. well, that's just the Jews believed it. Stephen... <coughs> And both Stephen and the Apostle Paul talked about that. In fact, Stephen, he was the first Christian martyr. And uh, remember, he was brought forward in front of the Sanhedrin. And they were going to stone him to death for blasphemy. And for, you know, they were challenging him. And in front of the Sanhedrin, he alludes to this belief that the angels delivered the law. And it's in Acts 7.53. And he tells them, you've received the law by the direction of angels, but you've not kept it. The Apostle Paul talks about the law in Galatians 3.19 and says it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. So that's what they're talking about, the law. It was given through angels. And, and if it was given through angels and you need to pay attention to it, how much more so the Word of God through Jesus Christ? And, of course, Jesus being more superior to angels, how much more should we listen to Him? And so he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. You know, the word neglect really it means to be careless of, to make light of, to have no regard for. And, you know, if you think about it, to neglect your salvation, really basically neglect is a, is a passive form of rejection. And so verse 3, going back to it, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and with miracles, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Do I need it? Oh, you need it. <laughs> My wife's making signs to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay. So... 
you know, when you go through the Old Testament, the Old Testament teaches, and you can read it throughout different places, that on the basis of two or three witnesses, something is established. You know, if you, were, if you were to come to a person under the Old Covenant and you were to say, you know, this person stole from me, according to the law, according to the Old Testament, you, you couldn't just go on one person's word. You need to have two or three witnesses. Well, the message of salvation was established on the basis of not two, not even three witnesses, but many witnesses. First, we see here Jesus' own words, right? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at end. Not only that, Jesus' own words about the kingdom of heaven and about salvation through him, but we have the apostles, right? The 12 apostles who were witnesses of his death and his resurrection, his, his death, his life, and his resurrection. And then, speaking of his resurrection, there were many people that saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. In fact, at one time, there were 500 people at one time, who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And then finally, so that's at least two, finally, the Father Himself bore witness to the truth of Jesus through signs and wonders. There's a lot of those. You know, it's starting with the sign of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. There were so many many prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus. In fact, there are about 300 prophecies that were literally fulfilled in the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over 300 prophecies that he fulfilled. Then there's the sign of the star. And we know that the Christmas, you know, the, the, the magi, the wise men that, that followed the star from the east to find out where the Christ child was born. Then the voice of the Father at Christ's baptism. And the voice of the Father at Christ's transfiguration. And then all the miracles that Jesus performed. Think about it. Jesus said, hey, if you don't believe my words, man, look at all the miracles that I've done. Believe the miracles if you're not going to believe what I say. At least, at least look and see. And then the sign of Jonah, which is probably the best of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said, uh, you know, just as Jonah was in the, in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three, three days and three nights. Wow. And then after his resurrection, the gift of the Holy Spirit to his church. You know, every time you and I see a true manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, it really is, it's a confirmation. It's another sign of God establishing that salvation is through Jesus Christ. But look at that words there in the end of verse 4. Notice that the gifts are distributed as the Holy Spirit wills. And not just as you or I will. In other words, you and I don't get to choose what gifts the Holy Spirit gives us. It's according to what the Holy Spirit gives us. Well, then, continuing his discussion, how Jesus is better than the angels, the writer states here in verse 5, For He, that's speaking of the Father, has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. I think it's really important for you and I to remember things. First of all, the form of this world is passing away. Paul mentions that in his letter to the Corinthians. Don't get too attached to this world because the form of this world is passing away. The Apostle John in his epistle writes, the lusts of this world are passing away. Peter writes that you and I, we look forward to a new heaven's and a new earth when rich righteousness dwells. There's a new world coming. 
And we're about to be uh, ushered into it very soon, I believe. And that world to come, the writer says, the Father has not put angels in charge over it. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 3 tells, you, tells us that you and I are going to judge angels in that world. But you know, the interesting thing is today, our society is so fascinated with angels. They're worshipped. They're, they're, they're focused on, and yet Christ here, who is much more superior to angels, man, people just neglect his salvation. They make light of, they just, they just don't think about it. They don't care. And then the writer here quotes from some passages of Scripture, and in, in, uh, here he quotes in verse 6, starting in verse 6, he quotes from uh, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. You know, I like this writer of the Scriptures here. Uh, I said, I think, it, I believe it's Paul, but we don't know for sure. But what I like about him is that he says here in verse 6, but one testified in a certain place. And you know, that hits me good because sometimes I can think of a scripture, but I can't think of where it's at. I know the scripture, but I just can't think of the reference. And some people, they can just rattle off references. Well, you know, in First Peter 3, this, you know. And, and, and I like to do that. And of course, I have notes so I can make... You know, you, you listen to me and go, wow, that guy really knows Scripture. i got it written down here. So, But, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to just quote verse, chapter and verse. Well, in this passage, in this verse, it says this. And there are some that I do. You know, I've, I've memorized some Scripture and I've learned some. And, you know, I want to study it and everything. But it's, isn't it a comfort to know that even one of the apostles said, hey, it's, it's written someplace. I don't know where, but it, it's someplace in here. This is what the writer did. But in one testified but one testified in a certain place verse 6 saying what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him you have made him a little lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in that he put and then he says for in that he put all in subjection under him he left nothing that is not put under him but now we do not yet see all things put under him. Where he's quoting from is Psalms chapter 8. Psalms chapter 8 was written by David, King David. Not all the Psalms were written by David, but this one was. David was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, can you imagine? I, I've gone camping, and you know, I love to go out and look at the stars. And here in Rochester, you know, you get out, you hear about that. Sometimes the northern lights, they say the northern lights are out. Man, I rarely see it here in town. You have to get out of town, away from the lights to see the stars, right? And if you're out in the, out in the country or you're out up north somewhere in the, in the backwoods, man, the stars are just brilliant. And can you imagine what it was like over, you know, probably about 3,000 years ago when David walked the face of the earth when he was a shepherd out at night in the foothills around Bethlehem. You know, he's just by himself. He's got all those sheep out there that he's watching. And all the, he's just got this sky just lit up over him. I just picture that in my mind, that David is just sitting there one night, crystal clear, no clouds in the sky. And all these stars are just shining brightly. And David's looking at him. And if you've ever done that, you know what I'm talking about. You look and you go, man, this universe is so expansive, and I'm so small. I mean, what, what is man? We're a speck of dust on a speck of dust in galaxies. and It just blows your mind when you look at that. And I think David was just totally impressed with the magnificence 
of God's glory and God of God's creation, how small and insignificant he felt. And listen, and I'm going to it's not in this passage, but I'm going to quote verse three to you of chapter eight, Psalm eight. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, man, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? God, you're so amazing. What makes me so special? God made man a little lower than the angels. And yet, God gave man dominion over all creation. Do you know that? God gave man dominion over all creation. But what happened? When did man lose that dominance over creation? Do you know that happened on the sixth day that the world was created? This world was just six days old when that happened. I'm going to quote to you, I'll read to you from Genesis 1, chapter 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him, and male and female, He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But as the writer of Hebrews states at the end of verse 8, but now... We do not see all things put under Him. What an understatement, isn't it? I have an aunt. I, actually, my dad, he was one of 16. He had 16 brothers and sisters, so there were 17 kids. Two sets of twins in his family. And uh, one of his youngest sisters, I think she's the third youngest, um, she just came back from the funer- funeral of her next older sister, one of my aunts who passed away up in Canada. And uh, my aunt who passed away in Canada had COPD and, and emphysema, the same disease that my dad died of. And uh, so she passed away, uh, actually it was, <clears throat> excuse me, a little while ago. And uh, so they had the funeral for her just uh, not even a month ago. And so this other aunt of mine went to the funeral where she wasn't feeling really good. And so after the funeral, she went to a doctor up in Canada. That's where they're from. She went to a doctor to, visit, to find out what was going on. And the doctor said, you've got lung cancer and liver cancer. And uh, so that was, I don't even think it was three weeks ago, because I just heard about it. Just, you know, how long? December 2nd. December 2nd. So not a very long time ago. So just a few days ago, last week, she was feeling really, really sick. She hadn't even been getting treated. And she started feeling really sick. She was throwing up a lot. So she called the doctor, and the doctor said, you better, go, you better go to the hospital. She went to the hospital, and that night she died. And we're thankful. I mean, she had a relationship with the Lord, so praise the Lord. You know, she's with her Savior. And, and I'm thankful that she didn't suffer through, you know, an agonizing disease. But, you know, here's, we have no control over our physical bodies. I mean, we, we do to some extent, but we have no control over disease. We have no control over when our last breath is going to be. We don't have dominion over that aspect of life. We see sickness and death ruling over mankind, and we have no control over it. 
We look at the devastating natural disasters that mankind, you know, we have no control over it. Now lately there's all these wars. Not lately, there's always been wars. But lately we see all these evil acts taking place throughout the planet, right? And it seems things are out of control. And we have to say, well, what happened? What, 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 how, how man is not in dominance. Man is not in control. When mankind rebelled against God, creation was put under the curse of sin. And man forfeited his dominion over this world. And now, as Paul describes him, the prince of this world, Satan, is indominant. You know, he's, he's, he's ruling right now the, the people of this world. <clears throat> so the first Adam blew it, and we lost that dominion. But I love ver- the end of verse 9. You know, things are out of control, but man, we see Jesus. You know, things may seem out of control in your own life, and probably in reality they are out of control. There's a lot of things that that we have very little control over about our lives. Jesus even was was talking about worrying. And, you know, I'm a worrier, so this really applies to me. He says, you know, why worry? You you can't add even an inch to your height. You know, why, why worry about things you have no control over? And uh, things may seem like they're out of control for you. But you know what? Things come into perspective when we look at Jesus. And Jesus puts things into perspective. And so the writer here says, we do not see all things under man, but we see Jesus. And Paul talks about him as the last Adam, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory, glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. And so for a time, and this is what the writer is getting to, for a time, Jesus was also made a little lower than the angels. When did that happen? When he took on human flesh and was born as a man. In that sense, he was lower than the angels. But... You look at Jesus' life. He also was fully God. Fully man and fully God. And we see Him exercising dominion over nature. Remember when He calmed the storm by the word of His mouth? I've never done that. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've never been able to say, stop raining, you know, and it stopped. But Jesus had dominion. He exercised dominion over creation. When He healed the sick, man, when He fed thousands, when He gave sight to the blind, when He raised the dead, Jesus was fully God. And yet He was also fully man. But the important point the writer here wants to make to his Hebrew audience is why Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And this is important from a Jewish perspective. Because a Jewish perspective, they're reading all these Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And He's going to come, and when He comes, everything's going to be good and everything. And they see Jesus. And Jesus was born of humble circumstances, right? We, we celebrate every Christmas. He was born in a stable. Very humble, very very poor. His parents were poor. Not, not what you would expect of a Messiah. Not only that, you know, he was from Galilee. And, of course, Galilee was like he was born on the wrong side of the tracks, basically. That's the way they looked at it. Can anything good come out of that area? I should say he was raised in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> but, you know, that's where he was from. He was a Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. And so they looked at him, and then, and then, so then they said, okay, well, if he is the Messiah, man, the Scripture says he's going he's gonna to reign and rule. And look at, we've got Roman control. 
And he hasn't thrown off the yoke of, of our oppressors, Rome. And so from the Jewish perspective, they looked at Jesus, and in fact, they still look at Jesus, and it's a stu- he's a stumbling block. So why was Jesus, who was made a little lower of the angels, why was he made lower than the angels? And the writer says, in order here to suffer death. Now think about this. If you're here this morning and you think God doesn't care about you or about your circumstances, man, God loves you. Consider this, man. God, who is eternal, God who is holy, clothed himself in human flesh in order to suffer the curse of sin, our sin, himself. I mean, there's just there's no greater love than what God did. So why did Jesus taste or experience death for everyone? And that's what he's going to go into now in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, by whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now when you read that and you read, you know, of Jesus, you go, wait a minute. He was made perfect through suffering? I thought Jesus was perfect. I thought Jesus didn't sin. Well, that passage there that Jesus was the captain of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings. It's not discussing the presence or absence of sin in Jesus. In fact, the writer is going to address that later on in Hebrews 4.15. He's going to say Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. The context here in this passage that we're reading right now is Christ's humanity. And what the writer is saying, it was fitting for him, the captain, and what that means basically is the leader of many sons. He's the firstborn of the dead, or from among the dead. He's the firstborn. It was fitting for him to be made perfect. And that word perfect also means complete through sufferings. Why was it necessary for him to be made complete through sufferings? Well, so that he could perfectly identify with you and I. Because Jesus was born as a man and he tasted what you and I are all going to taste someday. You and I are all going to taste death. Of course, unless we're that last generation that's alive on the face of the earth when Jesus returns for his church. But other than that, we're going to face death. We're going to experience that. And our Savior experienced it for you and I. And he can identify with us as a result. Verse 11, he says, For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's, that's you and I, are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. This is amazing to me. Because despite your and my character flaws, despite your and my failures, do you know that Jesus is not ashamed of us? I'm ashamed of myself sometimes. I'm ashamed of my actions. I'm ashamed of my attitudes sometimes. But Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to be called your brother. Now, that is also convicting to me because then I have to ask myself, well, am I ashamed of Him sometimes? Am I afraid to speak the name of Jesus in the public square. You know, am I afraid? Am I ashamed of him? Who do you think in this relationship should be more ashamed? 
Jesus should be more ashamed of me than I have him. And yet he's not ashamed of us. In fact, Psalms 149.4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. God takes pleasure in you and in me. So then in verse 12, he quotes Psalm 22.22, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. That's very interesting because in the King James Version, I'm reading from the New King James, but in the King James Version, it says, in the midst of the church, I will sing praise to you. This is speaking of Jesus. It seems to indicate that not only does Jesus choose to identify with you and I, not only is he pleased with you and I, not only does he, is he not ashamed of you and I, but when we gather here together to worship corporately, from what I'm reading here, he joins with us in worship. And then in verse 13, he quotes from, and there's, there's like three different verses. We don't know where. I don't know where. 2 Samuel 22.3, Isaiah 8.17, or Psalm 18.2, because all of these are quotations of this. I will put my trust in him. And then finally, he quotes from Isaiah 8.18, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. So we have these passages of scriptures in which Jesus chooses to identify with us. He worships with us corporately. In fact, he is so thrilled with you and I, he wants to take us home to meet his father. (laughs) You know, the Bible calls us the bride of Christ. And what groom would be ashamed to bring his bride home to meet his parents? Jesus isn't ashamed of us. And he wants to show you and I off to his father. Man, look at my bride. Look at my beautiful bride, Father. And that's you and I. Verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, Satan, to my understanding from Scripture, does not have the power to take anyone's life. I just want you to understand that. I don't, I, don't, I don't see it in Scripture. Remember in the story of Job in the Old Testament? God gave permission to Satan to torment Job. God gave permission to give him all kinds of afflictions, but God says, you don't touch his life. That you're not allowed to. And so Satan could only go so far. And I believe that's true of Satan. He can only go so far. I don't think he can kill anyone. In fact, he didn't take Christ's life, right? He probably thought he was going to, but he didn't. Jesus says, hey, I lay my own life down and I take it up again. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. But Satan is the one who brought death to mankind by tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. And in a sense, in that sense anyways, he has dominion over death. And so Jesus destroyed, which means to render idle or unemployed or inactive or inoperative, the devil. So Jesus, who was sinless and died in your and my place on the cross, he's rendered Satan, the Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren, out of a job. And he can he can claim he can he can accuse you and I he can say hey this guy deserves death he deserves and he has no claim over us and that's what Jesus destroyed. The, 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 the ability of Satan to lay claim on us. And as a result, Jesus also released you and I from the fear of death. 
Now, when I read that, I'll be honest with you, I fear dying. I really do. I mean, I'm not too thrilled about going through the process of dying. But as a believer, man, I don't have to fear death. I mean, I'm not too thrilled about going through the process. But I know what's on the other side. And so in that respect, man, I'm not in bondage to fear or death. And there are people today that are going through their lives that are in bondage to the fear of death. Because they don't know what's beyond. And they don't know, they don't know if they're, they, they don't have that full assurance. Man, am I, am I really saved? If, if I die, what's going to happen to me? And there are people that will avoid funerals. There are people that don't even want to talk about death. Because why? Because they're confronted with the reality of what's next. And so there's people that are in fear of that bondage to death. But Christ has set you and I free from that. We don't have to fear the power of death because it doesn't have a hold on us anymore. Verse 16, For indeed He does not give aid to angels, but He does give aid to the seed of Abraham. It's funny, about two years ago, we had some, right around the time of uh, the Sturgis motorcycle rally, we had some guys show up on motorcycles, a, a couple. And uh, they came in, they were bikers, and, and they were of a motorcycle club called the Seed of Abraham. It was a Christian club, and they were, they were just passing through on their way to Sturges, and they wanted a fellowship with us. I don't know if you guys remember them or not. not a neat couple. But uh, the writer's not talking about the Seed of Abraham Motorcycle Club. So um, what is, who are the Seed of Abraham? Well, you know, the Pharisees and the Jewish Orthodox Jews said, hey, we're the Seed of Abraham. We're the children of Abraham. And what did Jesus say? No, no, no. The children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. So if you have the faith of Abraham this morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you're the seed of Abraham. And so the scripture says here that Jesus doesn't give aid to angels, but he does does give aid to you and I, right? The seed of Abraham. Verse 17, Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, <clears throat> I want to back up for just a moment. The Old Testament. Remember I said that there's so many pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, which was we, they celebrate as Yom Kippur now in, in Israel, um, but that on the Day of Atonement, which happened only once a year, the Jews were instructed to take two goats. And one of the goats was to be slain as a sacrifice for sin. The other, the other goat was to be sent free out into the wilderness. And the Jews believed and they practiced that those two goats had to be alike. And they had to be alike in color. They had to be alike in stature. And they had to cost the same. Because, you know, it'd be, you know what human tendency is? Hey, if, if we're going to kill this goat, <laughs> or if we're going to let that goat go, you know, I want to pick which one's going to go because, you know, I'm never going to see that one again or whatever, you know. Uh, no, they had to both be the same. Same with in another picture here, the cleansing of the lepers, the, the sacrifice for the cleansing of lepers. If you had leprosy and you were cleansed of leprosy, you had to go back to the priest and the priest would offer a sacrifice for the cleansing of lepers. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, in the Old Testament, now there's a few people that were cured of leprosy, right? Uh, was it Naaman was one of them? 
There's a few people that were cleansed of leprosy in the Old Testament, but not too many. And then Jesus came along. And remember, he cleansed the leper. What did he say? He says, go back to the priest and offer the sacrifice for the cleansing of, of leprosy. Can you imagine those priests? Probably never had that experience again. Somebody came here, he's like, I got to do what? You know, and they have to go look for it and you know, dust off the scroll. And what, what are we supposed to do? What were they supposed to do? They were to take two birds. And the two birds were to be alike. They were to be of the same color, the same price and everything. One of the birds was slain and the other was let go. Well, this word propitiation, if you're in the New King James, propitiation in some of your other Bibles, it might say reconciliation. What it basically means is that Jesus provided himself as a satisfaction for God's law and God's justice regarding our sin. You see, the Bible says that there's a, there's a price to pay for sin. The wages of sin is death. There's a price to pay. And blood has to be shed for it. That's God's law. And so Jesus, who was made like you and I, He was alike like us, born of the man, like the goats on the Day of Atonement and the birds used for the cleansing, uh, the sacrifice for the cleansing of the leper. He was the one who suffered. He is the one whose blood was shed. He's the one who died. And you and I are the ones that are released from that. You know, God forgives sin. But you need to understand something. There's still a price that's been paid for that sin. It's not like Jesus is like this, you know, God's this jolly guy that says, well, okay, I just won't look at your sin. I just, you know, I won't look at it. No, sin has to be, there has to be a satisfaction of it. There has to be a punishment. But the good news for you and I is, man, Jesus paid that price. He satisfied God's righteous requirement regarding sin. And you and I are the ones who are released. Verse 18, For in that He Himself has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. I don't know if this sinks in with you, but listen, God who is in heaven, right? God in heaven, the Father... Jesus, He by experience knows what you and I go through and He can aid us. He's been tempted. He's gone through all those things that you and I have gone through, yet without sin. But He knows. I mean, you go through a tough time, Jesus understands it. You're going through rejection this morning, man, Jesus understands it. Is your heart broken this morning? Man, Jesus understands that. Have you been betrayed? Jesus understands that. And he says, because he has himself suffered being tempted, says he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know what I, I what kind of just jumps out me at me is that he is able to aid. Help is available, but it's up to us in our trial or in our temptation to turn to Him for that help. Oh, He's able to help us. But we have to decide do we want His help. We have to turn to Him. So chapters 1 and 2 here, the writer wraps up basically his point that Jesus is better than angels. And, uh, you know, I think there's another application which maybe in our generation or in our day and age is probably another application for us as Christians And that is all the false teachings that are out there. You know, we have the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus took on the nature of angels. 
But he didn't. He's not an angel. In fact, Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. There's a lot of wrong teachings about Jesus out there. There's even some Christians who give Satan way more credit than he's due. He's not like the evil opposite of Jesus. You know, like the yin and the yang. It's not that. Satan, or his his name is Lucifer, he was created, and he was created as an angel, and yet he's a fallen angel who rebelled against God. He's not the equal but evil opposite of Jesus. Jesus is so much more superior, so much better than angels. And don't let your focus and your attention be on angels. They're ministering, as Luke mentioned last week, they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister to you and I as believers. But the Bible also says that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. He deceives people. And Paul says this in Galatians. Because, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but if an angel appeared all of a sudden in this room right now, and the light, you know, sometimes you read some of the accounts when angels appeared and people fell down worshiping because it's just so overwhelming. But Paul writes this. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Don't let your focus be on angels. Because there are, there's a lot of deception out there. Excuse me. So, Jesus is much better than angels. And now, the writer, as we get into the rest of of the book of Hebrews, he's going to go into some more things to show how Jesus is better uh, than the Old Testament sacrifices.